Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everybody. Uh, this is Jonah. Uh, before we get to the show, uh, I wanted to let you know that the Dispatch is now offering you a chance to experience a full membership for the next 30 days, risk-free. There's a lot of information chaos out there, and with the Biden administration on the move, Democrats in charge on the Hill, and Republicans going through a wholesale realignment, the Dispatch is here to help you make sense of what's really important and what's worth your time. During this 30-day trial, you'll have access to member-only editions of all our Dispatch newsletters, including my own, David's, Sarah's, um, and of course, uh, so much more. Plus, you'll be able to join our members-only Dispatch Live virtual gatherings, which are always a hoot, even when I'm sober, which is rare. It's our sincere hope that you find the Dispatch membership to be valuable and something worth sticking with after the 30-day trial. If you don't, you can cancel at any time. To take advantage of this offer, go to thedispatch.com slash free30. That's thedispatch.com forward slash F-R-E-E and the number 30. Thedispatch.com slash free30. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Can you dig it? <laughs> Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast. I am two days sober. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just still getting a lot of grief about the Gallagher podcast. Uh, um, but. Uh, we can talk about that another time if people are still upset about it. You know, I, I'm not sure why some people are so upset about it, uh, but because I thought it was a lot of fun and I, whatever, we can talk about that another time. Uh, and speaking of fun, um, partly to atone for the breakdown in social norms that we of the sort of conservative, neoconservative bent also talk, often talk about when, uh, pining for the days when Victorianism bleached out some of the gin-soaked nature of British society. I thought a good antidote to the Mike Gallagher podcast would be to lean heavily back into the Wonkosphere. And so despite our conversation with Andy Smerick from the Manhattan Institute the other day about wonkery, some people thought it wasn't wonkish enough. And my response was challenge accepted. 
So I have brought on uh, Andy's colleague from the Manhattan Institute, old friend of mine, old friend of this podcast, and um, and uh, fresh off of a grueling baton death march of House testimony about the infrastructure bill, uh, we have Brian Riedel. Brian, welcome back to The Remnant. Thanks, Jonah. Glad to be here. So um, let's start there. So you you were going to come on last week, but in your you know, super nerdy Boy Scout kind of way. You thought it was more important to prepare for testimony before the Supreme Branch of Government, the U.S. Congress. Um, uh, how did it go? I mean, I guess it wasn't normal. You've I, you've testified before Congress before, right? I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, I've I've done it ten or fifteen times. But was this the first time you had to do it virtually, or have you done that yeah, before too? This this is the first time I did it without pants. Um, mm. I had tried to do it without pants earlier times and the members usually got really upset with me. So this is the first time I got away with doing full testimony without pants. Yeah. Most of the members got upset with you, it's just, <laughs> but we don't have to get into any more detail than that. Um, uh, there were some who were like high-fiving, but anyway, so, uh, um, uh, let's just sort of start with the basics, right? I mean, you're the, you're my, you're my, my budget guy. Um, what is your, what is it like, give me a, an executive summary of your executive summary of your testimony about the infrastructure bill. Boy, uh, where to start? The, the executive summary is that first off, we call this an infrastructure bill. It had almost, has very little to do with infrastructure. The biggest item in it is $400 billion for long-term care. Everything is infrastructure. We saw a democratic member of Congress literally say court packing is infrastructure. That was the story of this bill. There's all sorts of non-infrastructure, uh, which I which I hit. There's a, a climate conservation core. There's 400 billion for long-term care. The second issue that I hit is on the infrastructure side. The little bit that is infrastructure, they throw about 900 billion dollars at these programs without at all reforming the fact that we have the slowest, most bureaucratic, overexpensive infrastructure building in America, and they do nothing about it. Like, it takes seven years just to do the environmental impact statements. Uh, it costs four times as much as the rest of the world to build our infrastructure. Just nothing. They just throw more money at it. And then the other two two points I hit, besides the cost, were, number one, they call it the American Jobs Plan. Economists agree on the right and left. Infrastructure spending does not really create jobs uh, in the short run. And finally, and this is something I'm, I'm surprised to see the left so quickly embracing, there's about $800 billion in corporate welfare. I mean, essentially what they do is they, they raise corporate taxes by about $1.5 trillion, and then about $800 billion of it they will give back to the corporations if you do government approved research projects i mean some of the i mean there's 170 billion for the electric vehicle industry 50 billion for broadband um just to give you some examples i mean you have a 25 billion dollar ambitious project fund 52 billion dollar domestic manufacturing fund 31 billion dollar venture capital fund 35 billion dollar climate innovation fund i mean there's so much central planning in this bill. You have all these, you have a technology directorate created that would coordinate new enter, new initiatives you and bring industry together. You have a, um, 
new office dedicated to monitoring our industrial capacity. Like, there is major Japan-style marriage here between corporate America and um, government that is really just extreme corporate welfare. And, and it's interesting to see the left embrace that. And so th- those were the themes that I hit. Um, okay, a couple of things in there I want to return to. Uh, but again, for the edification of our listeners, I mean, obviously I have all of these numbers at my fingertips, but you're the guest. So um, can you just give us a sort of a top line, like how much for like bridging, you know, roads, bridges, tunnels, how much? Uh, it can be in percentage if you want out of what 2.3 billion I mean trillion right now uh you know how much for the care infrastructure thing how much you know just so we get a context of the global slices of the pie kind of mixed metaphor type thing yeah there is about 115 billion dollars for roads and bridges that that's it um there is about 300 billion dollars for other infrastructure things like uh, public transit, passenger rail, the stuff people don't use as much as highways and bridges gets about $300 billion. But still somewhat plausibly called infrastructure, and, right? So, yeah, yeah. Th- 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 there's about $400 billion in transportation infrastructure out of about $2 trillion. About $400 billion is, is is transportation infrastructure. You also, though, have $400 billion for long-term care. And then... um. On infrastructure, I guess, you know, there's $100 billion for the electrical grid, $100 billion for drinking water supplies and lead pipes, $50 billion for public schools, uh, $200 billion for housing infrastructure. Um, but again, you get up to the $170 billion for electrical vehicles, um, and then hundreds of billions of dollars in like twenty to fifty billion dollar grant, like corporate welfare grant programs. The, the corporate welfare is probably about seven hundred billion out of out of the two point three trillion. So I would say, out of the two point three trillion, I would summarize it as saying transportation infrastructure is about four or five hundred billion. You could plausibly say there's another three or four hundred billion dollars of other kinds of infrastructure, and the rest is long term care and corporate welfare. So when you Talk because, like, I have to say, just as a putting on pure pundit hat, when Biden came out and gave his speech, I guess the last week, ten days ago, something like that, defending calling all of this stuff infrastructure. Politically speaking, alone, it was defensible to me. Like when he says getting rid of le- replacing lead pipes, I think most Americans hear that and say eh, infrastructure, you know. And he went through, you know, broadband. Uh, you know, you can have arguments about this stuff, but I think the way he spun it sounded plausible to me it's the long-term care stuff that may be good but i find it really kind of funny that it's in this tranche rather than in the second one which is supposed to be about human infrastructure in the first place and then the other thing that i think is weird is the spending on education which like in the in the first the covid relief thing there was like 350 billion dollars for education and then in the previous legislation, there was like, I don't know, a hundred and something billion in there. And that money hasn't been spent yet. I mean, like, what does the extra money for infrastructure for education go to in this infrastructure bill that hasn't been covered by the three other things that have been spent on infrastructure for schools? 
it's completely redundant. Um, at last check, states were currently sitting on $180 billion for school construction funding that they have not spent yet. And they haven't spent it in part because the projects that they're supposed to use it for, the CDC did a study and said it should cost about $20 billion and they got $180 billion for it that they're still sitting on. And so they're supposed to get now another $50 billion for the exact same thing. School construction, infra- school infrastructure, uh, uh, making schools uh, safer for, th- for, for coronavirus, making schools safer from any sort of asbestos or anything like that, which, of, of course, we, we support. The question is, if, you're, if the schools are already sitting on $180 billion, which, by the way, is an enormous sum of money for, compared to how much the Washington usually gives to education, we're just throwing another $50 billion at it without any regard for the fact that they're, they're already sitting on all of this unspent money. So, um, can you, cause I, 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 I've looked into this before and I never know, you know, it's like you look into something and you feel confident talking about it in 2012 and then in a blink of an eye, your kid's much taller and it's 2021 and you're like, is this still true anymore? Cause I don't, you know, I don't study this stuff on a regular basis. My understanding, at least the way it used to be, and maybe even through the Trump administration is that. Um, the vast bulk of money spent on infrastructure, qua infrastructure, right? Old fashioned notions of infrastructure is spent at the state level. And the number of places that are legit federal infrastructure are few and far between. That doesn't mean they're not legitimate or important, but most of that money comes from states. And even the money that comes from feds, a lot of it is really washed through the states. And, um, so in some ways, I mean, when you were talking in, the, in your opening executive summary of your executive summary, when you were talking about the bureaucratic delays um, to pay for things without any attempt to reform the permitting process and any of that kind of stuff, it feels to me that a lot of this stuff is really just bailouts of state budgets because they're replacing the infrastructure money that the states were going to spend on infrastructure with federal money, which frees up that infrastructure money for paying the pensions of, you know, civil service employees or, or whatever. Can you want me to just walk me through how it works that when we say we're going to spend this money, that it actually gets spent on these things? Like, how does the state spend money on infrastructure and how, and how does this federal money replace that or not replace that? Is it add on or is it a substitute for? Yeah, right, right now, I mean, Two th- about two thirds of all infrastructure spending occurs at the state level. You know, it's it's funny because I th- I talk about this a lot with the gas tax. People talk about, well, do we need to raise the federal gas tax? The federal gas tax is eighteen cents per gallon. The average state has a thirty six per, uh, cent per gallon gas tax. States raise and spend one hundred and thirty billion dollars a year from the gas tax all themselves. Only one third of surface transportation money is funded from the federal gas tax. And so that's one of my arguments in a new paper of mine of why we should actually lower the federal gas tax and just let states do more. Because like with the gas tax, then in addition to states collecting their 36 cents per gallon, they collect the federal 18, which they send send it to Washington. Washington subtracts a beer, an administrative haircut and then sends it right back to the states telling them how to spend it. You know, states have to get Washington permission for how to spend the 18 cent 
per gallon federal gas tax. The argument I have made in the past is why not just cut out the federal middleman? If states are already doing two thirds, I think they're competent enough to spend the other third. Um, additionally, a lot of the other infrastructure, elect- electrical grid, energy infrastructure, um, most of that is done at the state level. You have some federal things like the Army Corps of Engineers, true interstate projects, waterways are mostly uh, federal lands are mostly run out of Washington, but states do the majority of infrastructure. And one of the arguments that I'm going to be writing on soon that I made in my testimony is, well, we just gave states $500 billion in grants in, in the last stimulus. We gave them $350 billion for budget deficits that no longer exist in most states, in addition to all the education money. Why not have states use that money for infrastructure instead? If you're looking for a one-time use to spend your one-time money, as opposed to like a permanent spending cut or a permanent spending hike or a permanent tax cut, wouldn't that be the perfect use for states to just take their $500 billion and spend it on the infrastructure, get Washington out of the way? But instead, Washington is going to do a lot of the infrastructure themselves in addition to the state funding. And here's the, the, the historically, like if you look at the, the infrastructure spending in the Obama stimulus, for every dollar Washington put into infrastructure stimulus, states cut back their infrastructure spending by, by 67 cents. So really, Washington is going to go into big debt. States are actually going to be able to cut back their infrastructure, and they're going to have this $500 billion they're additionally sitting on to do who knows what. So I, there's a streamlined way to do this. But right now, if you're a governor, it, it, it's, you have, you're living a great life if you're a governor right now because you have all this money and fewer responsibilities. Um, so right, let me try it this way. So how much of the, I mean, how much of the actual, I mean, again, we're only talking about something like 20, 30% of the bill being this actual infrastructure stuff, but like, um, um, what are the, how, what are the specifics of what the, the strings attached to them are? What are they? You know, because I know I remember them talking about um, that was it in the COVID relief thing. There was the rider saying that you can't use this money to to cut taxes. Um, is there any provision that says you can't use this money to replace other infrastructure spending, or is it just because my point is is that it feels there's this thing I keep groping at throughout for the last for the throughout the nearly first hundred days of the Biden administration is that so much of this democratic legislation feels like the real theme is bailing out blue state model politics, you know, of machine politics and, and, uh, fixing their chronic, uh, pension underfunding liabilities and all these kinds of things. And so if the money is fungible, right? I mean, like I, if, if, if I get to play with the money pretty much any way I want, then you could call this not, you don't have to call it an infrastructure bill. You could call it a bailing out the Illinois state pension fund bill. Is that wrong? Is that unfair? I mean, how does that actually work? Does yeah, that make sense? I, I, I think there's some truth to that because the money that comes from Washington, Washington's going to micromanage, you know, the $115 billion for bridges, highways, and roads, the $85 billion for public transit, the $80 billion for Amtrak. 
that that's going to be generally micromanaged out of Washington. But what it does do is it frees up governors to say, well, look, if my state is about to get let's say on average two and a half billion dollars of road road bridge and highway funding in this new bill, I get I can cut back my own two two and a half billion dollars, assuming that they're gonna spend it on something halfway rational in my state that I can I can then pull back my own money. And then I can do almost whatever because as you say money's fungible, I can do almost whatever I want with my own highway money that would have gone to highways, roads, and bridges. If they're going to put money into my state to modernize the electrical grid, I can pull back what I was going to spend. And so in that way, it, it is going to free up states and governors to take a lot of the, the general revenue and gas, state gas tax money that they were going to collect and do and do almost anything else with them. They can bail out pensions. The one thing that they, they, they have strings attached is they can't, they can't use the $350 billion they got in the last bill to cut taxes. And that's probably going to go to court. Uh, that may not be constitutional. It's really hard to design. It's really hard to enforce with fungibility. But what they have essentially told states is you cannot cut taxes with any of your federal windfalls. Again, I don't, I don't know if that's constitutional. But beyond that, you're exactly right. They're freeing up all the state money to do whatever they want with. Um. Okay, so let's talk about the long-term care thing, which, you know, I'd be, I'm willing having now in my own family and in friends' families, the, the issue of long-term care for elderly people is, is, is real. I mean, it's a real issue and I'm sure you and I would come up with some policy solutions that necessarily wouldn't be top-down state, you know, status, federal, central planning, yada, yada, yada. I, but I think that's a legitimate argument for us to have, right? We just have this really top heavy aging demographic and it really does it really can just ruin people's lives if you if you know someone's parents get the wrong late in life disease or whatever um it's it can be nightmarish but i just don't want to debate that about infrastructure you know and that's my it's i mean people say it's like when when Pete Buttigieg says most of the objections here are semantic he kind of is giving up the argument, right? He's basically <laughs> conceding that that what they're trying to do is call stuff infrastructure that's not infrastructure because it's in our politics, infrastructure codes is good in the American mind. And so if you can call it infrastructure, it's like in the old days, if you could prove if you could if you could win the argument that God was on your side, then it didn't really matter what you did because you had God on your side and God can't be wrong definitionally. Infrastructure can't be wrong. And so if you call it if you can get away with calling it infrastructure, um, you're, you know, you've, you're home free, but tell me how the actual care infrastructure, infrastructure of care, whatever we're supposed to call it actually works. What does it look like? Does it have any like positive reforms of that industry? Is there just more shoveling cash down the sluice? We don't know. Um, there, there is still, there's no legislative language yet. There's just, um, uh, there's an emphasis in in the president's um, uh, proposal, which is which is not legislative text; it's just narrative of home health care. Of uh, I, I think they want to they they want to find a way to put fewer people in long term care facilities, and 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 pay people better, and give give more supports for home health care, which I think is is perfectly fine as as a policy goal. I think a lot of times it's a lot 
it's an expensive people who need long-term care often prefer to stay home in the, rather than rather than sell their house and move somewhere else i think those are all totally worthy goals but it's why is that the biggest single item in an infrastructure bill? And as you say, there's a bait and switch going on. You shout infrastructure from the rooftops, infrastructure, 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 to get everybody to say, I like infrastructure. And then you whisper under your breath, well, it's not infrastructure, but the the, the, the word doesn't matter. This is semantics. After you had been shouting infrastructure, um, you know, for the top of your lungs. The thing is, I mean, $400 billion is huge. Long-term care spending is already part of of medicaid it's already growing it's already projected to significantly grow over the next couple of decades it already as part of the baseline and so 400 billion this is as much as medicare d was in 2003 you know we, we all went to we all had a, a huge war over 400 billion dollars for the medicare drug entitlement in 03 this is an oh by the way let's just throw 400 billion dollars um in, into this bill and by the way, the cost is going to be higher than $400 billion. One thing Biden did in this bill is he had all spending expire in eight years and the taxes be permanent. That's, that's how he got it paid for. There's no way that the long-term care spending is going to expire in eight years. He's basically saying we're going to do $50 billion a year for eight years. And then what? We're just going to cut it off with all of these baby boomers retiring? That's one of the ways in which... It's not going to be $400 billion. It's going to be $50 billion a year and then growing forever. If we want to do that as a country, let's have that debate, but let's not hide it in an infrastructure bill and call it infrastructure. Throw it on the floor and have a debate. Can we afford this? Is this the goal? How do we pay for it? Um, and you can see, I mean, look, I mean, that model of having the taxes go on and the spending stop works for a bridge. Right. I mean, I mean, like, I'm not saying I want the taxes to stay on, but like once you build the bridge, you've built the bridge. Right. You don't keep building it. And but with long term care, when you're talking about spending money on nurses and doctors for people, there is no there's no limiting principle to that. It's just eternal. Right. Um, but it's a gosh, I mean, my budget nerd muscles are so weak these days. Um in the old days, during the 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 in the before times, right? You know, we 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 sometimes we 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 talk about the Obama stimulus thing, the way the characters in Game of Thrones talk about the war that overturned the Mad King. It's mostly referenced as this sort of mythical thing in the past at this point um, from the before times. But one of the arguments that a lot of us made back then, and I'm sure you were one of them, whatever role you had carrying some file folder for some politician back then i can't remember where you were were you working for for paul ryan back then or for who? Uh, i was working at for, heritage uh, i was at heritage until 2011 and then i was rob portman's chief economist until 2017 with some campaign stops during that too okay so um regardless the the part of the argument that we made back then was the point of a lot of that spending wasn't just the spending. It was to expand the baseline, right? So that, because one of the most annoying things about Washington politics or Washington budget procedures, which if you have, if you can expand on it, please do, because I think people don't really appreciate this fully, what a pernicious thing this is, is that the way debates in part, thanks to the media, the way, if you cut the rate of growth 
in spending, that is seen as a cut. Right, right. Yeah, the, the the way the way the way Washington does budgeting is you assume a certain growth rate. Like if like Medicare, we assume that Medicare is going to grow 8% per year forever, which is going to by the way bankrupt us, <laughs> you know, over the long term. But then if Congress passes a bill and says Medicare should grow by 7% per year, the headline in the newspaper will be evil Republicans just slashed Medicare. And you could say, well, it's growing 7% per year. Yes, but we assumed it was going to grow 8%. And so it's, 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 it's a silly little budget game that leads to a lot of confusion. And it leads to a lot of hysterical headlines about budget cuts. People ask questions. Why do I always see these headlines about, about, about Republicans cutting spending to the bone and, and cutting all these programs, yet, yet spending keeps going up? Well, that's why. Because the, the crazy cutting spending to the bone. In 2005, Republicans passed a reconciliation bill that literally cut the growth of Medicare, I'm sorry, Medicaid, from 7.9 to 7.8% per year. And the New York Times did a staff editorial calling it one of the biggest wars on the safety net in American history because they cut <laughs> it from 7.9 to 7.8. That that's that's how they do the baseline in Washington. That's how you end up with with a 25 trillion dollar debt. Right. So, but all right, so couldn't you have a scenario, let's say and I, I don't want to get you too excited, but let's say Mitch Daniels is elected president in 2024 <laughs> or Rob Portman. OK, I mean, like, let's say one of, you know, one of the good guys, you know, more or less gets 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 elected and wants to get her fiscal house in order. If the baseline has been expanded, depending on what Biden ultimately gets across, I mean, it looks like we could have 10 additional trillion dollars of spending um, if he got everything that he wanted. We could cut the rate of growth to just an extra $2 trillion a year, which would be huge under historical terms. And by this sort of, the, this BS way of scoring things, that would be considered a massive 80% cut, even though the actual rate of growth would still be $2 trillion more than it would have been in 2015, right? I mean, I have that right? And so- Absolutely. It creates a political climate where it becomes, it's a ratchet effect, right? Where it becomes very, very difficult to make an argument for actual absolute cuts rather than just cuts in the rate of growth. Everything gets pocketed. The rate of growth can play a little game, but it's always growing. And I, I don't see how that's sustainable. Yeah, I mean, an example of that is, you know, B President Biden... We're spending so much money this barely got noticed. President Biden last week proposed increasing non-defense discretionary spending by 15% for next year. Just an, Oh, by the way, on top of everything else, we're going to take our domestic discretionary spending and hike it 15%. The thing about that is that's not just a one-time extra you know, $120 billion. That moves up the baseline $120 billion, which means next year you're going to start $120 billion higher when you're doing your increase. So the way to look at it is that $120 billion over one year is really $1.2 trillion over 10 years because you're, next year you're going to start at that higher level. And, and go from there. And that's that's the danger when you see these, these so-called one-time spending hikes. They're not one-time. That becomes the new starting point baseline for whatever percentage growth you want next year. It, it doesn't drop back down. And again, that, that's, that's how these costs explode. So 
I know you're green out green eye shade guy and um you know a little bit sort of Roy Scheider and Jaws 2 yelling at the Amitytown <laughs> Council that's a shark I know <laughs> as God is my witness I'm not going through that again kind of thing I I, I get it uh do you have but look put on a pundit hat you know politics pretty well why have Republicans been so terrible about I say terrible because some of them may just want this stuff. And so they're not trying, but like, why have they been so ineffective? Your theory of the case, obviously I have my own, uh, uh, at, at, at stopping this stuff so far. Well, I mean, I mean, and, and are you asking like for president Biden or for the last 30 years? Well, no, no. I mean, we can do the last 30 years if you like, I mean, president Biden in the sense that let, um, you know the what the I'll put it this way the the key symbolic sign of what's happened to the GOP to me it, since the Trump years was on the first bill, which I assumed you had some reservations about the one point nine trillion one, right? Oh yeah, which yeah, definitely. you could have you could have arguments that there was need for another kind of piece of legislation, but like it didn't need to be another $2 trillion and it didn't need to spend the way they spent and all that. I mean, I'm not open to that, but Biden seized an opportunity and the thing was popular. The RNC put out two statements on that $1.9 trillion uh, piece of legislation. Critical of it. Both came out after it passed. <laughs> um, and this wasn't like, like, oh my gosh, what bureaucratic inefficiency we didn't get around to this. This is like they chose really not to say anything. Kevin McCarthy, you know, chose to be far more high profile about Dr. Seuss than about that bill. Now, I think my friend Chris Starwalt thinks that's in part because they wanted the thing to pass and get it over with. Um, that's probably part of it. But all in all, like, I just don't hear consistent, coherent messaging from Republicans about any of these issues. I mean, you're kind of you're not, you're not the Japanese soldier alone after World War II on an island, but, you know, you don't have a lot of ideological friends on this stuff right now. What, what, do, you, what do you think's going on with the GOP? I mean, you, you, you were asked to be a witness. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember, private, you tell, I remember you and Michael Strain describing me as the one guy chained to the radiator in the basement still screaming <laughs> about this stuff. So, <laughs> um, you know, I, think, I think what's happened with the GOP on this issue, a couple things uh, slowed him down this year on this. Number one, the the rebates bought everybody off. What 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 the Democrats have learned is that if you make a spending bill big enough and you spread benefits enough to enough middle class people, they will they they will be fat and happy. People simply the middle class can be bought off if they're included in the spending. The middle class wanted their relief checks. I think if there's no relief checks, this bill is a lot less popular. But if you if you make it big enough that everybody gets their ornament on the Christmas tree, people kind of mute their complaints. I heard a lot of people who said, well, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of all the spending, but boy, if I can get a couple thousand dollars in a relief check, well, I'll take it. And so the, the, another thing that's happening, happening more broadly is this is part of the Republican Party's conversion into a working class populist big government party. I mean, this is not the Chamber of Commerce suburban party it used to be the gop base is older it's more populist it's more working class 
these are not anti-spending ideologues. And, and, and what Donald Trump did is expose that. You know, people thought this was Paul Ryan's party of, of libertarian budget cutters. And then Trump comes in and says, I'm going to spend like crazy. And, and, and he finds out that the army lined up behind him and not Paul Ryan. And this breaks my heart. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Paul Ryan, uh, person myself, but there was a, I mean, heck, there was a survey that I, I wrote for national review. I, I included a survey that said in 2016, only one tenth of Republicans supported social security and Medicare reform. One tenth of Republicans in 2016. And I think what's happened is, again, the party gets older, more working class, more populist. There just isn't the interest there in stopping this stuff that that I think Washington Republicans thought there was when there was a Tea Party 10 years ago. Um, and, and you're seeing that now. As I often say on this podcast, I am not smart enough, or at least I am too lazy to deploy the smarts I have to figure out this inflation stuff. Okay. Uh, and I have good friends going way back. who are very smart on either side of these questions going all the way back. And I even have quite a few gold bug friends. I'm not one of them. Um, I know enough to like say that doesn't make sense to me. And in fact, one of the things that always drives me crazy about the gold thing is they always talk about gold as if it's like the the true authentic repository of of value unlike currency or fiat currency which is just a social construction and has no inherent value the way i view value is if if the zombie apocalypse is tomorrow what are you grabbing and you are not grabbing big ingots of gold that slow you down you know you're grabbing water you're grabbing guns you're grabbing stuff right you're not grabbing money either and so gold is a social construction of reality too unless you're really into a good electrical efficient electrical wiring anyway that's an aside um i don't you know my friend ramesh says don't worry too much about inflation right now it seems he wrote that a little while ago now we've seen lumber costs go up fourfold you're seeing gas go up. You're seeing lots of things go up. I don't know how much of it's related to this, how much it's related to other things, pandemic, yada, yada, yada. I do know that I don't really want to live in a world where people think inflation is no longer or ever again going to be a problem. Um, and the surest way to get inflation, it seems to me, is to think that inflation is no longer <laughs> possible. But so where do you come down on this? What What is your... You don't, I'm not going to hold you accountable, but like, what is your best guess about why we haven't had inflation, whether we're going to have inflation? Um, you know, do we all get a $2 trillion coin? Where, where do you come down on all this? I think at, at some point there, there are legitimate inflation concerns. I don't think it's going to happen immediately. I think the, the economy hasn't, hasn't strengthened as much yet here. The way I look at it is this way last year that we ran a deficit of about $3 trillion last year. About 80 or 90% of it was funded by the printing press. I mean, it was remarkable. Like about, we funded about $2.5 trillion or $2.6 trillion of the deficit last year, essentially by printing money. Now, classically, you would say that has to cause inflation. You, you can't throw $2.5 trillion of a new, new cash into the economy without it causing inflation, especially when the output gap, you know, the, the, the output gap is how much slower the GDP is than its, than its normal sustainable capacity. The output gap right now is only 400 billion. 
So if you're throwing two and a half trillion dollars, but only 400 billion of it can actually translate into new products and, and, and new GDP, then where is the other two trillion dollars going to go? You say people say, well, that's going to go to inflation. What the Federal Reserve has said is that if the economy overheats, what we will essentially do is we will pay banks to keep money in the bank. We will, pay, we will pay interest on excess reserves. That means we will pay banks interest to hold dollars in the bank and not let it go out into the economy. If that's the case, you're not getting inflation um, because the money is going to sit in the banks. They can do that. The thing is then, what's the point of the fiscal stimulus? What's the point of adding $2.5 trillion in stimulus and putting it into the economy and adding to the debt if the Federal Reserve is just going to turn around and pay banks to hold it all in reserve <laughs> rather than let it circulate through the economy. So you can do that. You can have the Federal Reserve do that. And by the way, that does cost the Federal Reserve money. So that does, it's not like interest on, you know, interest on the debt is not a free lunch. Even when the Federal Reserve pays interest, that has to, that will ultimately come out of the budget deficit. Um, but the argument then is, what's the point of, again, a $3 trillion in stimulus funded by the printing press if the Fed is just going to pay bribe banks to keep it in, in the bank. A lot of people say, don't worry about it. The Fed can, the Fed's going to bribe the banks. But I just think that might stop inflation, but it also makes you wonder what's Washington doing in the first place. Yeah. And, and what is the current national debt? What's the percentage? Is it like 104, 107? It's about, a, it's like about yeah, it's about 104% of GDP. We're, we're, a, we're, we've equaled the end of World War II level. Yeah. And we've gotten so much for it. I mean, that's the, that's the <laughs> thing. I mean, all they got was like, you know, destroying the Nazis and, and the Imperial Japanese forces. Um, so, so, so I, I mean, the extent that they will talk to the likes of you and not just simply, you know, you know, shun you like a stripper in an Amish community. But uh, the 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 left wing economists that you have to interact with. I mean, maybe not that much these days because of the pandemic. But like normally, when you go to testify for Congress, you're in some waiting room with like Jason Furman or like you know like your opposite numbers on the other side, and and you have conversations about stuff. How many of like it feels as an outside observer that that the Dems have at least psychologically, if not intellectually, just bought modern monetary theory, right? They just think spending is its own reward, its own multiplier. You know, they, they, they invoke Keynes almost like a um, shaman ritual thing, as if like it proves that they're right. If they're, well, you know, Keynesian multiplier, as if... These are magic words that do something. Um, but there are, you know, like Austin Goolsby and, and Jason Furman and some of these guys, these are fairly serious people. Um, and how many of them are actually worried about this? Because it seems to me we're just having a giant experiment about inflation, right? I mean, that's what this, I think, looks like to me. And maybe you're right about the interest thing from the Federal Reserve fixes that, but if planning was that easy, economics would be a lot easier and a lot more predictable. So, um, like, 
is the AOC crowd really driving this kind of stuff? Or is this just sort of Biden people thinking we're not going to be able to get anything done past 2022. So let's just front load everything now. And there's really not an economic theory behind. I think MMT is a, uh, it's part of it. M- MMT is really popular on Twitter. It's not taken seriously by serious economists. Um, I, and I think what you have right now in terms of inflation is just a lot of. First off, you have a lot of a lot of younger economists who were not around the last time we had big inflation. I mean, their their entire adult lives have been periods of low inflation, and so they've almost forgotten what infl- how bad inflation can look. And so I think you just you have a lot of short-term thinking. Um you also just have a lot of confidence that the Federal Reserve uh, this technocratic confidence that the Federal Reserve will prevent inflation that we can pour all the money in now and later the Federal Reserve can just pull it all back and 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 bribe the banks to keep it in reserves. But I think the bigger thing driving the spending and, and, I, and I, I had an op-ed about this in the Washington Post in December, is so we, we are projected to run $100 trillion in deficits over the next 30 years. That's the baseline. If Biden gets his way, it'll be about $140 trillion over 30 years. I mean, the numbers are like you get up to 300 or two, 300% of GDP. The left is convinced that this is all affordable because interest rates will stay low forever. What they will say is that this isn't going to cost us anything in the budget because interest rates are, you know, 1% right now, so we can borrow forever. And the, the concern that I have told, that I have been arguing and arguing and arguing with these people is what in the world makes you think interest rates are never going to rise again? What makes you think they're going to stay 1% forever? Especially when the average maturity on our debt is 60 months which means we have to roll over our debt every five years. So if interest rates go up two, three, four percent, we're buried. I mean, the, the op-ed, the, here, here's a scary number. If interest rates exceed the CBO projections by one percentage point, that will add $30 trillion in interest costs over three decades. One percent <laughs> will cost thirty trillion dollars, and 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 if interest rates ever hit four or five percent again, we're looking at debt levels of 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 two, three, four hundred percent of GDP. So essentially, what what a lot of people, the very smart economists on the left, are doing is they're gambling everything on the idea that we can afford to run up unlimited debt or nearly unlimited debt because interest rates are going to stay at one percent forever. And I'm trying to say economists have made fools of themselves trying to predict the future. They don't, you know, they didn't predict the housing crash. They didn't predict the NASDAQ crash. No one predicted the pandemic. Um, and saying I can guarantee you what interest rates are going to be 30 years from now is a is is so hubristic and foolish. And and I can't believe we're gambling our, our fiscal future on this assumption that interest rates will never rise again. So everything I was saying before, notwithstanding, buy gold. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, how much, I mean, I, I should know these numbers off the top of my head, but I haven't looked at this in a while. How much of this, of the debt is owned by China, England? I mean, like, do you know, do you have a, I mean, I, I'm not asking for, you know, to the decimal place, but like, Here's a fun stat. Um, 
in 2010, China and Japan owned $2.2 trillion of our debt. This year, China and Japan own $2.2 trillion of our debt. In the last 12 years, the debt has gone from 10 to about, I don't know what it is today, it's rising so fast, about $23 trillion. Japan and China have not moved in 10 years. They still own $2.2 trillion. So back then they owned 22%. This year they only own about 4% because China and Japan haven't moved. And that's one of the things actually that worries me. I wish is they it, were paying. I wish they, they were. Is they think we're a bad bet? I mean, is that what it is? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of factors going. I mean, Japan's Japan's basically financing their own debt. Uh, uh, or they're or they're they're kind of becoming less less integrated in some of those in some of those debt areas. China makes a lot of these decisions for for reasons I I, I can't figure out to be honest. Um, a lot of it with China becomes political reasons why to buy and sell our debt. But the interesting thing is they haven't they haven't bought any net debt since 2010, neither country. And what that means is when we're looking at $100 trillion in new borrowing over the next 30 years, China and Japan aren't going to buy much. I mean, they, they couldn't buy $100 trillion. Their economies aren't big enough, which means we're going to have to finance this domestically, probably through the printing press. Mm-hmm. So who else owns the debt? I mean, how much of it is owned by Americans? How much and do you know? I mean, off the top of your head? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, uh of the of the about twenty-three trillion dollars in debt, there's a total of about four trillion, I believe, that are owned overall um by by foreigners. I think about three or about well, about four trillion more is owned by the fed and the rest is owned by americans it's owned by mutual funds it's owned by banks it's owned by by pension funds um the vast majority of the debt is owned by american citizens so i mean one of the things i'm trying to get at is that i totally understand why really high interest rates are bad and i understand why everybody thinks really high interest rates are bad um, wet blanket on the economy stifles innovation, stifles investment, yada yada yada. It's I don't the understand. Budget. I'm sorry. It, it'll bury the federal budget. Yeah, but and and and, the, and also the Armageddon stuff, right? But I'm just talking about yeah. in like people's daily lives. <laughs> yeah. And what I don't understand, particularly given how the GOP is getting older, right? Um, and America is getting older. Why there is this sort of tacit cons- bipartisan consensus? that crazy low interest rates are so good. Like, I, I, I would love to be able to teach my kid that, wow, look at the miracles of compound interest if you put money in the bank and look how it grows. But, and like, you have lots of old people who are, want to live, you know, like the whole point of savings is to live, you know, once you get a certain age, you want to get out of stocks and into, you know, bonds and other safer securities that pay a comfortable interest rate. What's paying a comfortable interest rate anymore? And it seems to me like that there should be a happier, the medium should be a little higher, except for the whole, you know, sure. problems of global no, finance. No, I, think, I think you're right in that one, one, one theory is that the Federal Reserve is going to have to go into a period of fiscal dominance. What that means is that for the next 30 years, the Federal Reserve's policy is going to have to be to keep interest rates at 1% so that the federal budget doesn't go bankrupt. It means that 
They won't be able to do basic macroeconomic stabilization. They won't be able to raise interest rates during an overheating economy or anything. They're just going to have to leave interest rates as low as possible to bail out the federal budget interest costs. Economic stabilization be damned. One of the problems with that is not only can you not actually use monetary policy anymore to stabilize the economy, but 1% interest is a really low return. If you're if you're a retiree, exactly, and you're living on a fixed income. Particularly uh, in an inflationary a, age, right? I mean, exactly. with modest inflation, 1% is screwing you. 1% is, is not enough. And additionally, what ends up happening is people end up seeking riskier returns. Instead of people who are in their mid-50s moving their money into safer investments, people put much more money into the stock market. They put it in more risky stock uh, stock options, and they do it um, at, at a period in their life where they shouldn't be she shouldn't be as risk seeking. And and you you end up creating stock market bubbles. And then when the stock market has boom and bust cycles, it can really wreak havoc on people. But you understand they're seeking returns that they can't find anywhere else. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, again, I mean, I guess my I agree with that entirely. But my point is is that. I've been shocked over the last 10 years how this hasn't created its own kind of political backlash. I mean, we're talking about long-term care. One of the reasons why we have to subsidize long-term care is, I mean, it's not the only reason. There are a lot of people who can't afford to pay for their, you know, themselves and all that. But part of it is that there are a lot of people, their savings, modest savings won't do it for you, particularly as people live longer. And safe, modest savings don't have the returns that you can live off of anymore. And I just, I'm shocked there hasn't been more of a political backlash about this, this set of facts. One of the reasons we haven't had a backlash is the stock market has done, because all the money has poured into the stock market, it has created a bit of a bubble that has made people richer. The danger is to the extent that many people believe the stock market's overvalued at a certain point that, that will not, that will end. And then all this money, all the, all the people who had been seeking these 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 more generous returns are going to get really upset. Buy gold. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, let's go back to the the the, the rank politics about this just for a second. Um, you know, there's a difference between being optimistic and hopeful. Optimism is just sort of this doe-eyed metaphysical assumption that things will get better because things get better and hopeful is like i hope they get better (laughs) but you know uh hopeful has more agency to it in the sense that there are things that you you do to hopefully see your hopes uh materialize optimism is just or sit back things will get better and um are you in, with that dichotomy of or that distinction between hopeful and, and optimistic? When you look at the GOP and the Democratic Party today, and we basically have, with some, you know, nuances and flavors, obviously, but we basically have two big big spending parties. Um, you know, one likes to rack up a higher share of the debt from cutting taxes than from cutting spending, but all in all we have two big spending parties. Um, what has to happen? What can people do? What can Republic, what, I mean, like forget Republicans, right? What, what has to happen to, to fix this? Is it going to have to be some, some really horrible crisis 
that wakes people up because I think one of the things the Democrats have proven is that they are not going to blink first in this game of chicken of running up deficits. And Republicans have kind of beclowned themselves thinking that they can outbid the left on, on growing the government and growing deficits, but they've lost the ability to argue for anything else. So where's the exit ramp for this? That's the question that I, I'm trying to figure out. I have worked under the frustrating assumption that it's probably going to take some sort of crisis. Um, you're going to have to have either the economy start to go back into a recession at some point or interest rates start to rise and the, and the bond market starts to get nervous. The bond market says, I don't know if I want to lend Washington much more money because I don't know if you're good for this. If the financial markets start to panic or the economy starts to fall under the weight, that will get people's attention. It's really hard right now, though, because the economy is is recovering from the pandemic and everyone's fat and happy. And so the, the danger is by the time this stuff hits you, by the time you feel it, it's too late to fix. Um, you know, that that that's the worry is, is let's say we go up to 180 percent of GDP and then interest rates spike to four or five percent. And the next thing you know Two-thirds of all your taxes are just paying interest on the debt. Well, now what do you do? And my cynical, if I, if I really want to be a cynic, I would say that what Democrats are doing, the Democrats are playing the long-term game, which is if you can run up your spending now and run up the debt now, by the time a crisis hits, it's going to be too late to cut spending. I mean, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, you can't cut all of that when when baby boomers are 80 years old. So at that point, the only option is going to be to start taxing like Europe, a 20% VAT, a big payroll tax. They could never get that stuff now. But if you run up the debt big enough, you can get you can lock in your spending and know that in 10 years we're not going to we're not going to be able to cut the programs that deeply to people. That's how you end up with European taxes. That's how you end up with a 20% VAT, a 22% payroll tax. I think that's the long game they're playing is, is patch the stuff together as long as they can to lock in spending the benefits that can't be reversed. And Republicans are falling for it. And do you, I mean, I, this is a serious question. Like, I mean, I, I, I've heard that argument in various ways, many times before over the last 20 years, including from you. And I'm not saying I disagree with it, but where, I mean, like, is there somebody who's actually explicitly made this argument in public? Is there some journal article that explains it? Because there's a, there's a tendency to assume grand strategy of the other side in, in our, in our politics. And, um, because it's the most, that's the only way you can come up with a coherent explanation for, for complicated behavior is you come up with a theory that fits the complicated behavior and it's kind of a cart before the horse kind of thing. And like, it wouldn't surprise me if Robert Reich has made exactly this argument because like he often articulates the cartoonish version of what we expect from people um, with those kinds of ideas. But could it, could a simpler explanation, which is one that I often fall back on when it comes to explaining things in politics, is that nobody knows what the hell they're doing and they all have very short-term time horizons and um, the the crazy ideologues, since they always think um, it's never enough, 
they're always just simply pushing for more. And people like Biden cave to people like AOC in the sense that, you know, if you give AOC 50% of what she wants, she'll be quiet for a little while and then she'll come back, you know, give a mouse a cookie. And it's just uh, sort of a Mansur Olson collective action problem rather than this grand 30-year vision. Because I just don't see a lot of politicians in Washington with grand 30-year visions anymore. I, I think it's a little of everything. I think there there's some there there's some of the AOC, let's just get what we can right now. But when you when I talk to liberal economists and I work at liberal think tanks, what they will say is let's lock in as much spending as we can right now. We can always raise taxes later. We can always, you know, they always say there's room to raise taxes later. There's if there's a problem, we can always raise taxes later. And I think that's it, it, it sounds less like a Mr. Burns grand strategy, but it's basically the same thing. Get the spending in place now. You can't cut it later. The deficit, if interest rates stay low, great. If interest rates rise, well, we'll just tax the rich. And and that seems to be where they're coming from. And Republicans, I think, kind of fall for it. I, I think Republicans, if they were smart, would take a grand deal on taxes and spending now, even if it's not a very good deal, even if it's only a half a loaf, even if it's 50% spending restraint, 50% tax hikes, they I think Republicans should take it now because 20 years from now, it's going to be 100% taxes, 0% spending restraint. Because at that point, again, the deficit's going to be so big and it's going to be so much benefits that can't be cut for 90-year-old boomers that it's going to be 100% taxes. But but on your question, I think the general argument is lock in spending now. You can always raise taxes if you need to later. Yeah. Um, and I know I've t- we talked about this in the last time you were on, and I, I quote you often about this. But just, you know, for this taxing the rich to pay for everything thing, right? How much of the current debt, I mean, I think I know the answer, but uh, you probably can articulate it better. Uh, how much of the current debt would be gotten rid of, or even how much of Biden's spending would be covered if we confiscated the wealth of the top 1%, you know? If, if we, well, if we confiscated all billionaire wealth, it would be about $3 trillion. So you would, you wouldn't even, this full infrastructure bill is going to be 4 trillion by the time they do human infrastructure that's coming out. You would you could confiscate every penny owned by every billionaire and you wouldn't even pay for it. Uh, additionally, if you took every penny that every millionaire earned in income, uh, it would it would not it would it would be about four percent of GDP. And which means it wouldn't it wouldn't even balance the budget if we took every penny earned over a million dollars in America today. In my testimony. I added up every progressive tax increase I could find. Um, I took the 70% tax rate from AOC. I took off the cap for social security taxes. I did the Sanders wealth tax, the estate tax, the carbon tax, all the Wall Street taxes, all the income taxes, repealed the, the 2017 tax cuts. I added up every single progressive tax hike that, that every one of them is proposed. And I got $12 trillion over 10 years. The baseline budget deficit is $15 trillion over 10 years, which means if you did every single tax hike proposed by every Democrat, you wouldn't even balance the budget, much less pay for a penny 
of the $11 trillion Biden has proposed over the next 10 years. Like it just, you could do every one of them. You wouldn't even, you, you can't even pay for our current spending with every one of their tax hikes. Yeah. So, this, I mean, this, so I, I've written this column a few times and I'm thinking maybe it's time to write it again. Um, uh, and, you know, in development economics, there's this thing called the resource curse or the oil curse. And the basic argument is that pretty much everywhere around the world with a normal economy, once you get past, it's like this Kuznets curve thing. Once you get past like $6,000 per capita based on like $1983, whatever it is, but certain, there's a certain threshold of income. Once you, tri- you flip to democracy, you stay democratic. And, um, and it's the old going back to the American and French revolution thing about once you get a big enough middle class that demands its rights and prerogatives and representation, um, uh, it becomes very difficult for unaccountable rulers to blah, 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 blah. And, um, the one exception is this natural resources curse, the oil curse, because in places like Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and whatever, um, Oil allows them to short circuit or bypass that mechanism because they don't need the wealth that is generated from a big middle class. And, or, you know, and so what happens is, is that the citizens stay subjects rather than become citizens um, because the rulers control all the wealth and, um, and basically give them stuff as patronage rather than take stuff from them in terms of tax receipts and then for become accountable. And it seems to me that, and obviously there are a lot of problems with this analogy, but one of the problems with this whole, the 1% will pay for it thing is that the left thinks that the 1% or the billionaire class, whatever level you want to put on it is like a natural, it's a limitless, it's like a limitless natural resource like oil. Um, and they, you know, they're much more likely to believe in peak oil than they are to believe in peak billionaire. And so they think that everything can be paid for without getting buy-in from the middle class, never mind everybody. And that leads to a certain kind of politics, a politics of nasty resentment, a politics of you're all being ripped off by this tiny sliver of people who can afford to pay for everything that you need. And it leads to a kind of undemocratic politics in, in governance and a, and, a, and a real lack of concern for taking care of how you're handling taxpayer money, right? I mean, the stuff you're talking about, how there's no like oversight for a lot of these things in the infrastructure thing, that's what you get when you feel like this is made up money or it's, you know, it comes from an oil well at the Fed or you're just soaking, you know, these billionaires who have, you know, enough to go around in perpetuity. And I don't know how you get around that because it, what you're describing is that basically we can't pay for anything unless we have a significant tax on the middle class, right? I mean, that's where, that's really where all the money is, is in the middle class. And that shouldn't be surprising because something like 85% of Americans call themselves <laughs> middle class in one way or another. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the, look, if we want to spend like Europeans, we have to tax like Europeans. And Europe, ta- Europe taxes the middle class, value-added taxes, which are essentially national sales taxes, uh, payroll taxes. The vast majority of the actual tax money needed to fund government has to come from the middle class. We we can all talk about Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. There aren't enough of them to pay for to pay for what we want to do. But I think you know you you make a, a good point about there being something a little unsustainable about this. You know historically, the reason the middle class has rejected 
European socialism and, and big, big spending is because they didn't want to pay the taxes. And so the, the middle class would always keep a lid on spending because they didn't want their taxes to be raised. Well, Democrats have spent the last 25 years telling them you can have a free lunch. The 1% will pay for all of your spending. You can get whatever you want. And so now you're seeing younger people and the middle class shifting so far to the left on economics because it's not they're, they're not the ones paying for it. They can they can pillage the 1%. And you and and what you start to see is ultimately now they want more money. The conflict the Democrats are facing is for all the Democrats talk about millionaires can pay for all of this. They haven't really actually done much to raise taxes on millionaires. And as a matter of fact, if you look at the SALT deduction, the Democrats are actually beginning pressure to cut taxes for millionaires now. So in some ways, the Democrats are bluffing uh, in a lot of ways when they talk about taxing the 1% because they haven't exactly stampeded themselves to, to reverse the 2017 tax cuts. The only part of the 2017 tax cuts they've really forced votes on was the one part that raised taxes on some on some of their constituents <laughs> with the salt deduction. And so it, it's a very, it's a rhetorical game they play. You don't have to worry middle class about demanding spending because they'll pay for it. But really, you know, between us, we're actually not going to pass a lot of bills, at least yet, to make them pay for it because they're also our voter base and our campaign contributors. Yeah, so, I mean, this is... This is one of the more vexing mismatches in American politics and sort of punditry is this assumption that Republicans are the party of the rich. You know, um, Mo Alethe was on the podcast almost a year ago. A friend of mine used to be a, a Democratic uh, spokesperson and uh, now is at Georgetown. And he told me about how he would do focus groups. They would do focus groups um, asking, you know, random citizens, what they thought of the Democratic and Republican Party, and in one of their focus groups, they handed they would hand out paper to people and say, "Draw an image of what you think best represents the Democratic Party and what best represents the Republican Party." And they would get a shockingly high number of question marks for the Democratic Party because they didn't know what it stood for, and they would get a shockingly high number of dollar signs for Republicans because <laughs> they thought that's what it stands for, and. I get why some people think that in part because of the political philosophy that Republicans had up until fairly recently, but the sort of cheap high school Marxian analysis that says every voter votes their economic interest is belied by the fact that like the democratic party culturally is much more the party of the wealthy, at least in terms of its donor donor base than the, the Republican party is. And, um, I don't see that changing. I think I think that's going to get more pronounced. I don't want to say it's going to get worse or better because that's a different argument. But it's going to become more pronounced in the next few years. And do you have a theory about why rich people, to a certain extent, don't vote their economic interest? Is it that it's actually their economic interest is not that threatened by Democrats? Or is it that they think the cultural issues are more important Um and there's more sort of veblen good virtue signaling involved in giving to Democrats um, than there is a cost in, uh, you know, their bottom line. Yeah, that's a good question. I think part of the issue is a lot of people vote Democrat because they're rich enough to afford voting Democrat. You know, I mean, and, and this is like the the the, the, the super rich. Um, they can af they can afford tax increases because they have more money than they know what to do with. 
I think uh, f- for a lot of the other upper income uh, Democrats, the ones who let's let's, let's say those earning over two hundred thousand, they feel like they can afford to vote their cultural interests and buy off their 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 wealthy guilt because in their lifetime the Democrats haven't soaked them with taxes. I mean, these people weren't around during seventy percent tax rates under Carter, ninety one percent tax rates under Eisenhower. They don't have any memory of that. So for these people. I can vote Democrat because the worst that'll happen is, you know, Bill Clinton raised it to 39.6 once. Um, and so as long as it stays within a narrow band of, of a top tax rate, you know, between 35 and 39.6, they can they can vote their cultural interests and buy off their wealth guilt. Uh, but I, again, I think it. it if you're super rich, you're too rich to care about about being taxed. If you're middle, if you're if you're merely rich. You don't have to worry about going back to the 70 and 90 percent days. I think if if Bernie Sanders got in, I think you might see a stampede of a lot of these people right back into the GOP because he really means it when it comes to tax the rich. It's not just rhetoric and a couple points. Well, oh, by the way, let me give you back your full salt deduction. Bernie means it. I mean, in other words, I think I think they view the Democrats are bluffing in a way. I think a lot of the rich people think the Democrats are somewhat bluffing on on real tax hikes. Um, right. Since we've, we've done a good share of a disproportionate share of, of democratic bashing, let's do a little Republican bashing. Um, you know, one of you know, the, the corollary to the question I asked you about Democrats is the question about Republicans, which is that particularly in the sort of Trump post Trump era, you know, you hear a lot about how it's, it's not the, it's not a personality cult. It's about the issues that he's fighting for the interests of these people, these the forgotten man and all these kinds of things. And one of my great frustrations is that almost all the people who say that in terms of mainstream media, um, the second there's a choice between fighting for the interests of this, con- this, this constituency, this put upon victimized, deplo- you know, called deplorable constituency and satiating the bottomless pit of narcissistic desire for compliments, they always, they always go to Trump worship in part because that's what the base actually wants is they don't care about the economic interest stuff as much as they care about seeing Trump as the avatar of their, their victim status, their righteous victim status. And the best example of this is like on trade. I mean, like, you know, Ben Sass, you know, used to talk about how in, in, in Nebraska, how Nebraska was first of all, the state that benefited the most from foreign trade because of all the stuff they would sell in terms of commodities abroad. Trump comes in, says this stuff about trade and opinions go from 70% pro-trade to 70% anti-trade. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the gist of it. Um, what is the long-term viability for the Republican party in terms of like, what, what is, what does Republican economic policy look like if the Hollies, the Cottons, I mean, Cotton, Cotton's at least, I think, a more serious person. Um, but the Hollies, the, the you know, the, um, who am I forgetting? You know, these jackwads are running in Ohio. Um, the people who think that, that uh, you know, what J.D. Vance is saying these days, which really bums me out, about how the GOP basically has to be an anti-corporation, anti-rich people, anti, um, you know, a, a sort of a punitively populist economic party. Um, 
what is your prognosis for how that looks going down the road and like what it what it does to our economic outlook? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I have the same concerns you do. I mean, this is a logical extension of kind of a know nothing populism of everything is the rich global elites. And we're seeing that now with the Republicans don't talk too much about corporate taxes anymore. I mean, Biden proposed raising corporate taxes by 1.5 or about $1.8 trillion, which is six times bigger than the corporate tax cut they got in 2017. He'd reverse it by 600%. You're not hearing a peep from Republicans about about the, the tax the tax angle. Can, can you explain because, that just so, guys? I, I feel like listeners are going to say, how, how can that be true? Because it feels like it's they say it's only going to go up partially to the rate not even going to go all the way back to the pre-Trump rate. It's just going to go like halfway there. How can right. it be so Trump, much bigger? Trump cut the corporate rate from 35 to 21, but nearly all of it was paid for by reducing corporate tax preferences. Um, in fact, only in fact, the net cost was only about $300 billion over 10 years. And if you take the joint economic score of the growth revenues that you're going to get, they said it was closer to about $100 billion over 10 years. Most of the cost of the 2017 tax cuts was the individual side. The corporate was mostly paid for. What Biden's going to do is he's going to, after going from 35 to 21, he's going to raise it back up to 28. But he's also going to keep all the base, all, all those tax preferences. He's not going to give them back. So you're going to have the 28% rate and you lose the base broadeners. I see. And additionally, huge new taxes on multinationals, which will be paying even far more than they were paying before the 2017 tax tax cuts. Um, a, a global minimum tax for all multinationals of about 26%. You know, back, back before 2017, a multinational company could keep their foreign income abroad and pay no tax on it. Under Biden, there would be a minimum tax of about 26%. So that's how you end up with 600% no, that's of, of I didn't what they had lost. Yeah. Um, but I think broad, but what you're noticing is Republicans aren't making the case against that because the Republican base right now is, 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 is pretty populist and anti-corporate itself, saying that we need to make sure our corporations are competitive isn't necessarily a selling point with a lot of Republican voters in middle America right now. Um, they're, they're mad at, I mean, Republicans, I mean, you, you see this every day. Republican voters are mad at, at woke companies doing uh, woke um, PowerPoints for their for their employees, moving the all-star or complaining about the all-star game, moving the all-star game. You know, you don't you don't really have much of an attachment to 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 business America and in the Republican Party. And on one level, I think that's healthy um, in that. For, for too long, we've confused support of corporate America with support of the free market. And I know you've written on that a lot. Um, and, and I think it's right to have a little skepticism that a lot of these companies are just looking for favors from the government. They're not free market. And now they're kind of declaring war on, the, on conservative values. And so I think to a degree, it's healthy. But you also got to have somebody standing up for, for basic free market values. And if the Republicans continue to move away from free market values and the Democrats move away from free market values, eventually we're going to start to see the policies that bring slower economic growth. And of course, when that happens, people will blame corporate America for that. And then, and then they'll tighten the screws even more. And so I do think there's a danger and that we, need, we at least need some party to stand for free markets. Uh, otherwise, you know, I think over time you're going to get more regulations, more taxes and slower growth.
Yeah, I mean, you're also going to get, I mean, this is, I mean, part of my problem is once you establish a principle for your side, you, by the rules of argument in human psychology, you give permission for the other side to use the same principle, right? And that's one of the, one of the problems here is our obsession with hypocrisy has to do with part of the psychological dynamic. If the GOP says, you know, just going by some of the stuff that like Holly and Vance and other people are saying and. And what other people aren't saying, because there's no, part of the problem is I don't think most Republicans believe that stuff, but they're not willing to have arguments against it. They're just sort of tacitly letting these other people be the representatives out there shaping what people think the GOP stands for. And they're not saying anything. I mean, I, I like Bob Portman. I like, I like Toomey. I like a lot of these guys. Very few of them were interested when it mattered at pushing back against the bad ideas in their own party. And every now and then, you know, one would do, you know, two of me said some good stuff about trade and whatever. But, you know, my point is, is that if, if you don't want people to think the entire Republican Party believes X, you got to say, no, 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 we believe Y when the only voices out there who are allowed are saying X and they don't do enough of that. That said, um, if you establish the principle that it is okay to punish corporations when they do stuff that you don't like, um, and that you think it is totally legit to punish them for speech or political activity that you don't like as a political matter, you just make it very, very difficult to offer a principled objection when the other side does it. And it used to be that the Republicans had more success than people appreciate in saying to Democrats, Hey, look, you can't just bully corporations into being your social policy, you know, slaves and doing whatever you want to do and, and punish them for, you know, disagreeing with you. That's part of the, the Citizens United thing was sort of about and all that. And now we're moving into a place where everyone is for statism for me, but not for thee. And that creates a race to the bottom problem because no one, no one can actually articulate an argument from principle by why both sides approaches are actually wrong. And, um, and again, it's why you're the guy like handcuffed to a radiator still caring about this stuff while everybody else has moved on to another party, which I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. But I mean, like, do you, I mean, when you talk to Republican senators and congressmen, which I assume you do more than I do, um, uh, do you get a sense that they actually care about this stuff in a, in a profound way and are trying to figure out how to deal with it? Or is it just like, it's out of my hands. I'm a galley slave and the boat's going to go where the boat's going to go. There, when I talk to Republicans, the difference between what they will say in private and what they will say in public is remarkable. In private, they will say, we have a huge problem with the populist uh, uh, economics. We need to do, we need to, we need to fight deficits. We need to spite, fight spending. We need to stand for free trade. We need to stop the, the, the free market bashing. And, and then you say, well, why don't you say this stuff publicly? Well, I can't because the base has already moved on. I'll, I'll get killed. And so right, what you have right now is that's why a lot of them are retiring, obviously, because it, they, they, they can't speak up and represent their constituents anymore. And they don't, they don't, they don't have a lot of them just don't have the courage to lead. They they see what has happened to uh, some of their colleagues who tried to move the GOP back to what it was in ways before Trump, not just on personality, but on economics. And they get hit hard. And so you have a lot of Republicans who 
will tell you they understand all of this, but they will say it's a different GOP. We have it's it's working class, it's populist. The 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 free market GOP is gone. It's not coming back. So with that, buy gold. <laughs> um, Brian, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, I could do this for a while, but we've gone for a while here and I don't want to eat up the whole day. Um, but, you know, love to have you back because if this continues at some point, we're going to need, put, we're going to put you in charge of the meals ready to eat and the bottled water <laughs> and the ammo and you can handle the budget for all of that stuff. So anyway, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. All right. So, uh, you know, this is a little behind the scenes, you know, how the sausage gets made thing around here. This often happens. It drives me crazy is that uh, some of the most fun conversation is uh, after we stop recording and people, you know, relax a little bit. And so it started like after we stopped recording or uploading the audio, I was just, you know, uh, uh, shooting the fecal matter with uh, Brian about stuff. And he said, you know, he wanted to apologize because he's often on conversations like this on panels or in podcasts, or whatever. And people say, you know, can you end on an optimistic note? And I, you know, and I, I really wanted to end on something a little more uplifting because I feel really bad that I ended on such a dour, pessimistic note. And then Brian proceeded to explain that he's got nothing. <laughs> um, so uh, the, the upside of his pessimistic note was that he was um, honest and uh, and then I raised the question, which uh, he says he's actually thought about a lot, of what if it turns out that like MMT and all of this stuff is actually true, and there's like no consequence whatsoever to spending tens, twenty, thirty trillion dollars, a hundred trillion dollars, because it doesn't matter if you're borrowing money against your from yourself. Anyway, what if it all turns out true to be true, and there's no downside to it? Then like literally, you know, Brian Wolves have wasted his entire life. And even though it will have been in good faith, the accusation that he, uh, he just wanted to keep poor children poor was objectively true. Um, and you know, it's like, uh Oh, um, but I, I explained to him, you know, the, the upside of that scenario is that, yeah, while he will have wasted his career, um, and, and, and delayed to some extent people from, actually being vastly richer and more prosperous, uh, it won't matter as much because he will, of course, have his own, you know, dacha on Mars, as will we all, because if we can all be trillionaires, why wouldn't you? Um, and, and then he's just said, well, look, you know, on the other hand, I've always, um, you know, as someone who complains about spending and taxing and living within our means, um, I've not really been very effective anyway. So I know what it's like to, to having, wasted <laughs> wasted my breath anyway but and then he went on to say that on his deathbed when you know the chuds and godzilla and 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 the raining fire destroying the planet and whatnot he will at least be able to say before the rubble crushes his skull i told you so so um that's my uplifting end to this uh thanks again for tuning in please i don't think i did the proper intro the dispatch stuff at the beginning if you can subscribe to the dispatch, uh, that would really be great. And we're doing a free trial thing. Uh, you can find out more at the site. Um, and, uh, you know, check it out. If we could get everybody who listened to this podcast, you know, I got a very thoughtful email from somebody saying how we really should have, um, 
a uh, full-time science correspondent? And my answer to that is, you are correct. We should. But, you know, we have to live, unlike, unlike Congress, we have to live within restraints of budgets, and we don't want to get out over our skis financially, and we're trying to be good stewards of this to make this a long-term successful company and an institution. And that means, uh, you know, being small C conservative about some things, but if we could increase the revenue base, we could increase the the menu of stuff that we want to offer. And there are all sorts of things that I would love to do, um, that we just don't have the bandwidth right now. We're very successful I and mean, we're doing great. We're beating our expectations, yada, yada, yada. We're having a board meeting tomorrow and we have a good story to tell. But um, there's just so much more we can do. And what it really relies on is, is people who can become, you know, paid subscribers. And uh, we're going to keep trying to add more and more value to people who do it. It's interesting, though, you know, among the chief, we don't get a lot of cancellations and we're very grateful for that. But one of the chief things, I think the second most common thing after complaints of people saying, you know, having their own weird individual idiosyncratic complaints about how we're, you know, uh, we've gone too Trumpy or we've gone too anti-Trumpy or we've gone too right wing or we're too left wing or all of these, or you've changed or this isn't what I expected. You know, there are all these different things that, that, that people will say when they, when they cancel. And again, we don't get a lot of cancellations. Our subscriber base is growing, not shrinking, but there's churn. Um, the, the second most common thing is you guys offer too much stuff. It's just too much stuff. And, you know, one of the things, one of my responses to that is you can manage your email settings so that you don't get everything that we send. You can just get the stuff that you want and you can still always read the other stuff when you want to by going to the website. Um, but that one thing I won't apologize for is putting out too much good stuff. And we plan on putting out a lot more good stuff um, over the next year and hopefully decade or century or millennium. Um, and that requires getting people to 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 sign up and and now that the pandemic is winding down we're going to start adding events to things more often and we're really excited about that as well so anyway uh if you can please sign up uh please give us a try and uh, you can cancel at any time and uh we're super grateful for the the success that we've had so far and we just want it to compound um as quickly as possible so we can do all sorts of exciting things and um, I guess with that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.